And our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. You know, prison isn't one of those places that tends to broaden your expectations. Prisons here and in the ancient world differ in lots of ways, different looks, uh, different tasks, different rubrics and protocols, different sorts of settings and life expectancies. But what commonality is that they tend to shrink your focus. They tend to draw in and make smaller your life, whether it's the life within walls in which you might get to go out and play for a bit, or it's within a cell where your life is smaller and it's shrunk to a small room. Um, this has effects on people. You, you go like Christians have done through the centuries and you visit prisoners showing hospitality and care and sharing not only your friendship but the gospel with them and you'll find that overwhelmingly they speak of despair, of hopelessness, and that this can have ongoing implications for who they are and what they become. Some of you will know the movie from the 90s, The Shawshank Redemption. And in that remarkable movie, talking about life within those walls, uh, there's a character named Brooks. Brooks has been in prison for decades, almost his entire adult life. And eventually he is freed. And he goes to a nearby town and he's put in a halfway house and he's given a job bagging groceries in a grocery store. And he walks to and from work and he doesn't seem to connect with anyone. He's by himself. And day by day, he finds it difficult to embrace this new reality, the notion that his world has broadened. He's at work bagging groceries and he won't simply slip away to the men's room when he needs to. He goes like you might go to a guard to ask his supervisor if he can have permission to go do what he needs to do. And eventually you can see that this is overwhelming him, such that the final acts depicted of his life are that he, he etches in the wood frame up above his halfway house bedroom, Brooks was here, and then he hangs himself. And of course, the viewer, as we're watching, the irony is that we're led to ask the question, was Brooks really there? He was let out of the walls of the prison, but had his heart, his imagination, had it so shrunk that he didn't really live and enjoy and experience freedom? Was he capable of that broader life? And word trickles back. And a number of his fellow inmates hear that he has killed himself. And one of them, Red, puts it this way. He says, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. 
Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. It sounds better. Morgan Freeman saying it, not me. <laughs> but you get the idea. Brooks and Red, who's still in, and one day perhaps to be paroled himself, are institutionalized. They have lived within those cloistered walls that have shrunk their world. And like so many men and women in prisons throughout the ages and around the globe, they can't seem to imagine something broader, something bigger, something different than the painful status quo. I bring that up because it's important to remember that what we have had read to us by Ben, these words from Ephesians, are words from a prisoner. And Paul writes not merely of things that he's experienced. He offers not merely an apologetic for wise in prison, sort of defending his good name. But he writes and he prays. And he doesn't merely pray, but he prays for greater, bigger, grander things. Not just survival, not just getting out again, but for things that exceed the imagination, that go beyond what you might ask. Now, you and I aren't in prison But I wonder if Ephesians prompts us to ask, have we been institutionalized? Have you been so shaped by the smallish ways of our world, by the shrinking perception of our secular age, by the rhythms of the mundane and the everyday, that you don't expect greater, bigger things? That the notion of something broader, the notion of something bigger, the notion of something new and transformative that it is something that we find difficult to imagine. And here, I think we're prompted to look at Paul's prayer and to observe two ways in which it's meant to train and shape us. Paul asks, not just for himself, but for you, for me, for the Ephesians, for Christians everywhere, that we would have power for faith to know God's love. And then secondly, Paul goes on in this acclamation, this benediction, this sort of breakout word of praise that interrupts his letter, and he speaks of how God is more. God's love and glory are more than we might even imagine. And I think if, if we're those who've been institutionalized, if we're those whose expectations have been so shrunk, then perhaps patiently paying attention to what Paul prays here and what Paul the prisoner expects and hopes for you and for me, it might expand our vision too. So let's look first at his prayer that we would have power for faith to know God's love. Verses 16 to 19. As we read, we read this, that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What's the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I have to tell you, the English somewhat sort of hides this from you. This is one of the most awkward sentences you will find in the entire Bible. It is somewhat stumbling in the way it says something and then repeats it and then repeats it yet again. And you can catch a bit of that in that you have these recurring statements, so that, or for the sake of that, uh, that seem to stack on top of each other. Paul is asking 
that God out of his glorious riches or abundance is going to give you things. And he describes it in three different ways here. Three different things that God's richness will mean for you and me, he prays. The first we see there in verse 16, he's going to grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He mentions this idea of the inner being, that you would be within you, inside of you, that you would be given strength or power by the Holy Spirit. And I think we ought to be alert to why this comes up here and why this precedes where we're about to go starting next week. You'll note uh, that the series title as we explore Ephesians is in light of more. How do we live in light of more than we might otherwise perceive? How do we live in a way that befits or is worthy of that? We'll see in Ephesians 4.1. And we'll see that chapters 4 through 6 describe the implications of that more, the nature of that breadth, of that freedom, of that excess that God wants to give his people. And so it's going to talk about relationships. It's going to talk about uh, forgiveness. It's going to talk about your life financially and sexually and intellectually and morally. It's going to talk about how you fight a, a spiritual warfare. It's going to talk about all sorts of things. It will get all up in our business in all sorts of really concrete and specific ways. And before we get to that, before Paul talks about what it looks like to live in your outer, public, bodily, social being, how we treat one another, how we relate to our enemies, how we deal with those around us in so many ways, he wants to address the inner being. You know, it's a lot like Matthew 5 through 7 Jesus there in the famous Sermon on the Mount, you might remember from a couple of years ago, he addresses so many things. What do you do with your anger? What do you do with your lust? How do you avoid becoming entitled? How do you think of those uh, who are further away, maybe even enemy to you? How do you treat them? But before he talks about all sorts of things you should do with your money and your religion and your body, he first begins with those Beatitudes, you know, before you need to go and turn the other cheek, you need to first be the meek person. Before you go and you avoid sort of parading your religion before others and showing off to get their acclaim, impressing them with your spirituality, you need to be someone who's poor in spirit. Jesus is addressing this idea that it's very easy to take even Christian morals and to turn them into a strategy for earthly success. And so Paul here wants us to be transformed in our inner being. He wants to address the heart, the soul, who you actually are underneath everything that's visible. And he believes you need power. He believes you are weak. Remember, he's addressing Christians here. He doesn't believe you're dead. He doesn't believe that you are still in your transgressions and sins, that you're still under the power of the enemy, but he does believe that you are a human being, just as you require nourishment, just as you needed breakfast this morning or that heavenly cup of coffee to get you going. So you need spiritual power so that your inner being can be sustained and strengthened for what's ahead. But what's ahead? The second thing we see here that he's praying, first of all, is that you would have this remarkable power, the strength from the Holy Spirit and no one else, no one lesser, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
He's picking up on this idea from the end of of chapter 2 where he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles, the one body of Christ, are a temple in the Lord. God dwells in us. You know, it's it's easy for those of us further along always to kind of look down at sort of elementary ways of talking about the Christian faith, like when children pray for Jesus to come into their hearts as if that's something that's immature. But we're reminded here that's, that's so central to what Christianity is about, that God dwells in us, that He, he makes His home in us, that He's formed in us, that we are His temple. And here we're told He's our temple through faith. He dwells in us through faith, that the Christian life is marked by this centered, outside-of-ourselves character, what we might call eccentric, not funky, not strange, but being centered outside of yourself, this notion of dependence or trust, that you, you place your good, you place your hope in another, in their power, not your own, not your weakness, but God's strength, not your faithfulness, but God's trustworthiness. We need strength. We need power from on high to willingly take our hands off the wheel, to trust that we can consistently turn to God even when it seems like the most foolish thing in the world. And we see that that faith here, faith has a greater goal as well. There's a third thing he says, that you being rooted and grounded in love that you might comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He wants you to have power so that you can trust, and he wants you to trust so that you can come to know. He uses this word, comprehend, that you can get your, your hands around this love of Christ. And so the Christian the one who has been born anew, who's given new life, still needs to know God's love more. And he describes this in this remarkable way, this image of space. He wants you to know the height and the length and the breadth and the depth, the width of it. He wants you to know the excess of it, the, the space in which it takes up. But then he so quickly goes on and he says something that almost sounds contradictory. He wants you not just to comprehend the scale of it, but he wants you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that goes beyond any scale, that goes beyond something you might comprehend. He wants you to be so taken with the love of God that you realize that it will exceed whatever assumptions you might have, that it's beyond imagining And he says this finally for the fourth point, end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that you may actually be filled up with with what makes God full, with what means God is blessed and whole and beautiful and joyful in and of himself. And isn't that the most startling thing for a dude in prison to say? He He is stuck there, and he writes... And he doesn't gripe, and he doesn't even simply ask that he would get out or that he would survive, that he wouldn't get knifed the next day or abused by the the jailer, but he prays for others, and he thinks of others. And he doesn't just pray for others that they not land in prison like he is or that they survive and live to see another day and another visit. 
but he prays that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice all the different words here that speak of the size and the scale and the span of God's love and what it means for us. Paul begins here in verse 16, according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant this to you. He comes back here in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in verse 20, he talks about God doing abundantly that which we might not ask or imagine. Paul wants to see our hearts enlarged. He doesn't merely want to see them filled or satisfied, but he wants to see them enlarged, that we might want more. You know, we often think about what's the mark of a successful Christian. Have you thought about what successful prayers are like? You know, we oftentimes, especially if you do CBR, we, we journal and you mark down not only what you see, but what you're led to ask. And don't we so often think of successful prayer as something, well, I asked that last week or last year, and now I can check it off because something that was requested was finally given. And somehow a successful prayer can very easily be an item that you might have on your to-do list or God's to-do list that you've placed there for Him, and it's finally been satisfied. But I want to suggest that the, the second great thing we see here in verse 19 through 21 is that successful prayer doesn't simply satisfy our wants, but it deepens and expands them. That we see that there's a glory and a goodness beyond our imagining. Let's read those verses here. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice where Paul's been. We've been looking at Ephesians for several weeks now, and we've talked about how there have been four demonstrations of God's power. At the very end, after the first prayer, verses 16 to 19, verses 19 to the end of chapter 1 tell of God's power that raised the dead Jesus to life, and he's on the loose now. And then the first 10 verses of chapter 2 tell of how there are those of us, Christians, who were dead in our sins and transgressions, and we too have been made alive with Christ, and we're actually seated in the heavenlies. And then it goes on, the second half of chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, and it talks about how there are these two peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles, or the circumcision and the uncircumcision, and they were enemies, and they were at enmity, and they had nothing to do with each other that was of any good or use. And they've been brought together and made one body through the cross, that God is making them a temple or a holy habitation to dwell in all of them, one body, together. And then we see, fourth and finally, what we looked at last week is, as Ben preached on these first 13 verses of chapter 3, where it's, it's sort of an interruption, it's an interlude where Paul talks about God's power made evident in taking a persecutor of the church, somebody who has for years campaigned against King Jesus and has served as a, a traitor in very real terms to Jesus and his kingdom, and he is 
turned upside down, and he's not merely turned upside down and changed, but he's sent out to be this mouthpiece leading the charge, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we saw that that's one example of God's power in giving direction and purpose to his children. And so we've seen all these different ways where God acts in ways that you could never expect. Dead people don't walk out of tombs. Dead sinners don't dwell in the heavens. Jews and Gentiles do not hang out at the same house parties. And and persecutors are not apostles. And time and time again, Paul wants us to see that God's power brings life where none can be expected where we might have our imagination so institutionalized, so shrunk by our ordinary, simple experiences of the everyday. But if we can look at what he's been saying, we can see that time and again, grace interrupts. Time and again, resurrection intervenes. Time and again, God shows up in his power. And the takeaway from that isn't simply, that's really great. Those are wonderful stories, and we ought to simply pass them on again and again. Now, notice where Paul concludes. He says, to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Far more abundantly than raising one person from the dead. Far more abundantly than raising us to spiritual life. Far more abundantly than stitching together one schismatic social reality. Far more abundantly than taking one person and giving them direction and vision for their life, putting them to use in the kingdom. Looking at those stories, seeing all the different works and wonders of God's gospel, we're supposed to have our imagination stirred. We're supposed to dare to imagine and to dream how life might be bigger life might be different. We're to have a a discontent with the status quo. We're to have a discomfort with the shrunk and the small. We're to have a prayerful mentality like Paul himself who bows his knees before his Father who's in heaven and takes that posture of humility. He's on his knees after all, but of grandiose boldness and confidence. We saw at the end of the passage last week that boldness and confidence to approach the throne are one of the greatest gifts of the gospel, that we can wander right up to our heavenly Father and address Him and ask boldly, confidently, not with entitlement, but with the name of of son or daughter, with a right and an inheritance that we've heard about in Ephesians 1 that are ours by grace, that were purchased expensively by Jesus for you and for me. And here, in these verses, you see one example. What does bold, confident prayer look like? It's not simply, Lord, help me get through work tomorrow or through this sermon right now. Lord, help me get the next exercise in. Lord, help me make it through this month and all the bills. All those are good things. I don't mean to diminish that you ought to prayerfully take up all the small mundane struggles of every day. But mature, successful prayer, prayer that that comes with power, prayer that demands faith, is the kind of prayer that learns from seeing God answer some things 
and that learns from seeing God answer small things and mundane and ordinary daily things that we learn to ask more. That being given an inch, we, we learn boldly and confidently to ask for the foot. That we would pray that God would bring newness. That we would pray that God would expand and broaden and deepen the kind of love that we know. He dares us. He wants us watching carefully what he has done to imagine all the things that he will do. If you were reading with CBR yesterday, we read Psalm 136, and you may have noticed a little pattern where once or twice or 26 times it tells of something that God has done and it gives a common refrain. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And reading a passage like that or reading Ephesians 1 to 3 is meant to teach you two things. It's meant to solidify in your heart time and again that God is a time-tested provider of what He's promised, that His Word doesn't fail, His promise doesn't drop, that He is reliable and He's committed to your good. But secondly, it's not mere history. It's history for the sake of tomorrow. It's history for the sake of living expectantly. The Jews at the time of Psalm 136 who are recounting those remarkable works and wonders of the Lord 26 times are proclaiming His steadfast love that endures forever because they need it tomorrow. And friends, so do we. We live in a world, we live in a day, and we live with old selves that frankly are shrunk, that are institutionalized, that are habituated to expect little and to hope for less. But there's another way. Some of you, of course, remember the story in the movie, Back to Shawshank, and that problem of of fear that there might be something more, that, that fear that you might ever live in a way beyond those small walls and Red, who observed how Brooks was fated to die and to suffer and never to really make it out, he'd been told by Andy, the hero of the story, remember, Red, hope is a good thing, and no good thing ever dies. Red eventually gets out, an old man. He's paroled, and he goes to that same halfway house, and he goes to that same grocery store job, and you can watch him suffering the same small life that marked Brooks and that eventually led Brooks to kill himself. But what you see is that Red's story doesn't end there because he's reminded of a promise and because he's been told stories of hope, hope that is the best thing and hope that eventually never dies. And if you watch the movie you see that Red doesn't kill himself and Red doesn't live a shrunk life and then he ventures out boldly and confidently with that word and with that dream. And friends, that's our gift. As we listen to his word, as we come to his table, God is aware. God is aware that there are so many things shrinking your expectations and battering your soul. God is aware of circumstances that make it difficult to hope. God is aware of character that frankly doesn't find it intuitive 
to dream big, but, but tends instead to revert to despair? God is aware, and so He reminds us of hope, and He recounts for us stories of hope made good. And He invites you and me, His sons and daughters, those He's loved in eternity, those He's purchased on Calvary, those He wants to commune with this very day, that He wants you to be filled. He wants you to be filled with the fullness of God. He wants you to experience and to dream of a glory in the church and in Christ Jesus that is beyond anything we might ask or imagine. And that means it might not look like what we'd expect. It might look like something a prisoner could experience. It might look like something that's going on as the Son of God is being killed on a hill outside the city. But that means that it's glorious. That means that it's rich. That means that it's full. That means that it's what God from eternity has designed to fill you up and to satisfy you, not merely to answer your heart's cry, but to deepen it, that you might want more, and that you might want more in Him. And so as we prepare in the next weeks to explore all the ways that the gospel changes everything about us, all the ways in which it involves transforming our human experience, the way we treat each other, the way we treat those who are not in the church, the way we use our bodies, the way we use our words and our thoughts. As we prepare to see that, we need to first see that we do that in light of more. We do that with a deeper prayer, And we do that with a broader hope if we do that by faith. Let's pray and ask God to work that hope and that faith in us. Lord, we thank You. You ask us to call to You. Remarkably, You've not only saved us from death and brought us to life, but You want to give us abundance. We don't tend to work that way, and we haven't often experienced that from others. And so we pray You forgive us if oftentimes we are clumsy and disbelieving. We pray that You would give us Your power and that You would work that faith, that it might grow in us, that we might more and more know ourselves to be beloved by You, and that we might thereby know more and more that You want more for us, that You want to see us transformed. You want to see us redeployed. You want to see us walking with deeper hope and greater expectancy. And so we think of Paul and the kind of faith and love that would lead a man to say these things from a prison cell. And we praise you for the work you did in him. And we think of ourselves, and we think of our brothers and sisters around the globe, and we pray that you would do it again, Lord, and that more than we might ask or imagine, you might provide for your church nothing short of glory, that your name might be praised now and forever throughout all ages Amen.